not, not only that, I, when I stand in this pulpit, I stand here in the fear of the Lord because I'm representing Him and He's entrusted you to me so that I could only speak to you what He wants to speak to us and with the heart with which He wants it spoken. So I put prayer into it, effort into that, really more than anything else. So when I say that we have an, there's an answer and a solution to every problem, I'm not saying that lightly. We're living in a time of obviously great turmoil. And with that turmoil, there's confusion. Our leaders, and, and many of them, are sincere and are trying to do the best. We, we see highlighted often those that are corrupt and highlighted those that are selfish and self-interested. But, but with many behind the scenes that the media doesn't, doesn't focus on are sincere servants trying to serve you and me, do the best they can, whether it's in, the, whether it's in our government or whether it's in our, our medical industry trying to save our lives and to give us healthy lives. Whatever aspect of lives men and women are trying to do their very best, but what we're learning is on their very best, they don't know what to do. They don't have the answer. And so the beginning of God helping us is to recognize where the answer is to come, and is there an answer? So we began to go back into God's Word and see what God has to say about this. And we saw that the, that the answer comes from the problem, and it's understanding what there's a root fundamental problem to all the problems we, that we're dealing with. And it goes back to what happened in the Garden of Eden when God created that man and woman and He set them free in that garden, a place of paradise and enjoyment. He wanted them to enjoy it, but He established one boundary. He shared, showed them two trees, the tree of life and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God only gave them one negative command, one thing they could not do. It was they, were, they could not eat, partake of, the, the tree of the knowledge of fruit and evil, of fruit and evil, of good and evil. I hope it's not going to be one of those days. And the significance of eating of something is you're partaking of it to give you what you need for your life. And that's very important. And so what God was saying to them is, I have not designed you to prosper in life by eating for yourself the knowledge of good and evil. God did not design man to handle the knowledge of good and evil on his own apart from God. Well, then what did God do about the knowledge of good and evil? God left that responsibility to himself. So as long as man would simply obey God, God took care of the knowledge of good and evil. So when God said, you should do this, that was good. When God said, I command you not to do that, God was telling us that was evil. But what man did is he took into his own hands the pride and, and the, the pride that he could handle that discernment and carry out that distinction on his own. And we're living today as man has since that time, with the fruit of our ability to handle the knowledge of good and evil. So what's the solution? The solution is to go back to the problem and God's answer. So that's what we began to talk about over the last several weeks. And what we began to see is that the church, God has put the church here to bring His answer into the world. But the church can't bring his answer to the world if the church is making the same mistake that the world makes. Because then there's no difference between us 
and the world. And so what God's word teaches is the only way there is, the world looks hopeless right now. We look at these, these look absolutely out of control and hopeless. But we saw last week that when Jesus established his church, we saw that the church that Jesus established said, and my church, the gates of hell, and that's what's loose in the world today, shall not prevail against my church. But he made clear, my church has a foundation to it. And the foundation to my church is the revelation of who I am, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed deliverer that God promised to send, and that Jesus, the anointed deliverer, is the Son of God. And it is all in that, but in wrapped up in that revelation is who He is. That He is the Son of God. So when the Son of God approached Levi, the tax collector, when the Son of God approached Peter and his brother Andrew, when the Son of God approached John and James, the son of Zebedee, he didn't invite them to follow him. He told them to follow him. And it was a command that we came from the throne of God saying, you, I've called you, follow me. So wrapped up in who he is, is the authority that he has, and he is described now in that authority as the head of the church. So if the church is God's answer to save the world at this time, and it doesn't mean the world is going to be turned around and saved, but God wants to save people out of this world. And he's not done doing that. It's only going to happen because the church stands up and is what he's called us to be. And so Satan understands that more than the church does. So his method, his simple method is to do with us what he did with that first couple and what he did we saw when he was kicked out of heaven. And that's to get us as children of God to try to handle the knowledge of good and evil on our own. Now what happens when we do that? It creates division in the church. And we talked at the beginning of this year that Jesus' last prayer before He went to the cross, obviously Gethsemane, but before He went to the cross, the last prayer He prayed, the thing He asked God above everything else for is that we would be one. Not just one by being able to gather together as different nationalities and different races. That's wonderful. That's very rare. But it's a deeper unity, a deeper oneness than that. So we're learning as a church how to face these difficult issues, but how to face them together as one. To do that, we have to understand a very important distinction Because when we don't understand things clearly, the distinction between clearly, we get confused. And Satan works that. And part of the way God's wired my mind is because I was a a philosophy major in college. (laughs) What a mess. I was a lawyer for over 20 years. And so I still think in very distinct terms. For lawyers, words are critical. 
The nuances of words are very important. And so I bring that thinking over to God's Word, and that's what allows me to break these scriptures down for you the way I do it. That's just, just how I read it. And I said all that to explain to you that there is a difference, a distinction between division and disagreement. And it's worth spending a moment or so over this because we will never agree on everything. If you've been married more than two weeks, you understand that. God has a sense of humor in putting people together in a marriage between a male and female who don't see things the same way, have different habits between squeezing the toothpaste, the toilet paper, all those things we joke about, and more serious things. But the divisiveness, division, is where we have different motives and different goals. Disagreement is where we have the same goals and motive, we just don't agree on how to get there. Simple example. My wife and I are going out of town this week, we have to go to Boston to fly out of town. So we both know how to get, we both know where we're going. And this is not going to happen because I do the navigating. But we could disagree on how to get there. We could go up 128 and come in, in, in the Mass Turnpike, or we could go up 93. So we can look at that and say, oh, I know, I don't, you know, honey, it's shorter to go this way. now. I've always gone this way. So we could disagree about that, but we're not divided because we still have the same goal. That's to get to Boston. But we've had dis- discussions before <laughs> where we get into the middle of discussion and discover we have two different goals. I want to go to Boston and she's trying to go to Worcester, Massachusetts. Well, we're never going to agree because we have different goals. And what happens when you have different goals, you start pulling for your goal against the other person and you start pulling it apart. When I talked about unity at the beginning of the year, I went through, second, I think it's second Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about schisms in the church and division. And I held a sheet up here. And I think I had Gary up here, and, and, or my wife for the one of the times, and we made a little tear in it because the tear means we didn't agree on something. But if we kept pulling at that, it pulled the sheet apart. And now that one sheet is no longer one. I said all that to explain that's Satan's goal in the church. Again, in a church of this size, even with a staff this size, we will not agree on everything, and that's okay. But it's when you get division, when down inside of us, our real motive, and sometimes it's hard to find that motive, when our real motives are in different directions, then we're never going to come to agreement because we're divided. And Satan's goal is to divide the church. Why? Because he understands better than we do the power of unity. It's not my purpose to get into that today. I may do that down the road. But Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel where God had to literally confuse their language because God said that even though their purpose and cause was evil, there was nothing that would be restrained from them because they were in agreement. So Satan knows the understanding purpose of agreement. Unity. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'm just going to mention another scripture. And I think it's Psalm 1... 
133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Because he talks about there the blessing of God and the anointing of God flows when there's unity, unity of purpose. So Ephesians chapter 4, if you'd put that up here. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, next verse, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, putting up with each other, bearing with one another, in love, next verse, endeavoring to keep I've talked about this before. Notice he's not telling us to develop unity. Keep means you have something and someone's trying to take it from you. Endeavoring to keep the unity. What is the unity? That we all agree on politics? That we all know the unity of the Spirit. What he's saying there is what unites us It's not that we look the same way on the outside. We obviously don't, and that's wonderful. What unites us is the same Spirit is dwelling in you that's dwelling in me. So he's telling, endeavor to keep it in the bond of peace. Because peace can only come from unity. Verse 4. Because there's one body... There's not a black body and a white body. There's not an, a Latin body and an Italian body. There's, not, there's one, 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 one body of Christ. And if you see yourself different, you're not in the body of Christ. That doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that we look different. We have different backgrounds. But if your identity is in the way you look, You've got either the wrong identity or you're not in Christ because there's only one body. And it's not exclusively at Faith Christian Center. We're a part of that one body. And one spirit, just as you were all called in one hope, one goal, one motive, one hope of your calling. Keep going. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. And there's one God and Father of all who is above all, through all. And this church, Paul was so southerner in y'all. <laughs> ah, you should have gotten that. Right? All right, let's go down to verse 11. And this is what he did about it. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, and pastors. The, the, full, the full five ministry gifts. Keep going. We're going to, have to just go right through. For the equipping of the saints. That's all of us. Why? For, so we're equipped to do the work of the ministry. The word edify means for the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come to what? The unity of the faith. Not of doctrine, of faith. And we all come to the knowledge of the Son of God, to who He really is, to a perfect or a complete man. And what is the standard that we all have as our goal? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
till we no longer be children tossed around to and fro by every, carried by every wind of doctrine. That's what's out there now. By the trickery of men, cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. These are all things that come to break the unity. Speaking, this is how we do it, speaking the truth in love, which is what I'm endeavoring to do today. We may grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, even Christ. You can stop there. So what unites us, what holds us together, what we have in common with one another is we belong to the same body together. We have different talents, different abilities, but we have the same, which means if we are, if our unity is in Christ, then our values, our right and wrong has got to come from Him. Not from me, not from you, not from Sister Whatchamacallit and Brother Doodad, not from social media, but it can only come from Him who is the head of the church. All right. Now that we've kind of laid that foundation, the perp- part, one of the purposes that I believe God's given me here at this time is to help lead this congregation through these issues. And that doesn't mean we're going to go through all of them and answer all of them, but give, you, give us a focus so that together we can position ourselves so that God can do what He wants to do here. So we're going to look at one of these issues today, but I'm not going to look at it the way you think I'm going to look at it. We're going to look at one of the most popular issues in the world today, especially in this country, and it's a legitimate issue, is justice. So let's first of all say what God says about justice. I'm not going to go through, through the scriptures about it. That's for another time, because we're not going to look at it from that perspective. But God... Justice is one of the three or four main things that are, is critical in God's eyes. God hates, not that you don't like, He hates injustice. And justice is one of His prime values. So when it comes in terms of right, 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 right and wrong, justice is right in God's eyes, and injustice of any kind is not only wrong, He hates it. But we're going to look at justice from a different point of view today. First of all, what is justice? I spent some time researching this. And I was amazed because I got into to, to websites of some major institutions and I looked in their ethics department, and they, which is interesting, and they talk about all different kinds of contexts for justice, comparative justice and all kinds. It was, it was very confusing. But what I looked at, I boiled down into basically this. It generally means being treated fairly, receiving what is right, what is fair, and what is appropriate. Now in law, the image that's used in law is a lady, you've all seen it, with a sword in one hand and a scales in the other. The old kind of scale, which, you know, the two trays balance like this, that was used for measuring uh, uh, the, the, the true weight of a product that you were buying. And then she's blindfolded. So what do those represent? The sword represents that there have to be consequences for things we do wrong. That's the sword. The sword represents the punishment or the, ju- the carrying out justice where something's been wrong. But we've got to look at the other two things. Because the scale represents that the way that justice is carried out that the punishment has to be appropriate for whatever's done wrong. I'm talking in legal terms right now. Okay. 
But then the lady that's administering this is blindfolded, so she's not choosing how this is exercised based on the person that she's handing justice. So justice is blind. So let's bring that into a practical situation and, and see how, what that kind of means. So let's look first of all that, 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 that justice requires that, that if something is done wrong, that there be a consequence to it. So let's talk about extreme examples of these where, where obviously we would be offended. So somebody that we know has murdered somebody or let's say they raped somebody in a violent act and they come before the judge and say, nah, that's okay. We're just going to let them go. That would outrage us because it's wrong. There should be serious consequences for somebody doing something that violent to somebody else. Is there only two of us that think that? <laughs> or you're just waiting. Where's he really going with this? <laughs> so there have to be consequences. And if they're not consequences then we're upset. That's part of what people are angry about today. But in the carrying that out, she holds a scale. So the punishment has to be appropriate for what was done. So for instance, and I know of cases, this is really exaggeration. Suppose some, you're charged with stealing gum. That is a crime, you know. Stealing gum from the local 7-Eleven. And you come before the judge, and the judge says, Five years hard labor. Well, that's an outrage. That's unjust. Because the punishment has nothing to it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Or the other way around, you've committed murder, and they say 30 days in jail and a slap of a fine. So it's not an appropriate punishment. But then, if, if there's two of you standing in front of this judge, and you're charged with the same offense, same background, and the judge looks at one of you who just happens to be a close friend of his and says, mm, 15 days in jail and $50 fine, and for the other one, a year in jail and a $1,000 fine, that's not just either because the only basis for treating them differently is you favored one over the other. So that gives us a general sense of what we mean by justice, at least in the context of a court. I want to mention to you a concept that we rarely think of. We get upset if we don't get justice. We get upset if other people don't get justice, especially where we believe justice should be given. And, and that's right. But have you ever thought about giving God justice? Isn't God entitled to justice also? We don't think of that very often. And yet, for Martin Luther, Martin Luther, I hope you understand, was the principal leader and, and instigator of the Great Reformation. It was his great, God's revelation to him out of his years of studying, meditating the book of Romans, that the light finally dawned on him that we are not saved by what we do, but we're saved only by putting our faith and trust in what Christ did for us. But the principal foundation of his teaching is called giving God justice. So all these things we just talked about, 
about being entitled to justice for ourselves when we stand before a judge or in any situation that, I, that, it, that, 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 that yes, I may be entitled, you know, if I'm guilty, I deserve to get the punishment. But in ministering that, it needs to be a fair punishment compared to what I did and it needs to be administered fairly compared on how you treat other people, then those principles ought to apply to our relationship with God. I mean, isn't God entitled to justice? We demand justice, and, and rightfully so, but listen, how can we demand justice and say God isn't entitled to justice? Because the foundation of grace is understanding what we're going to talk today about today. To the extent that you don't understand or accept what we're going to talk about today, to that extent, grace doesn't mean as much to you because you don't know how desperately you need it. So let's, we may not finish all this today, but this is important. So in order to understand what justice God is due, we have to know some things about God. And here's the problem. We've talked about this many times before. We've got to understand who God is, what God is, and what God requires. All of us have formed an image of God on our own. We don't have time to go into where you formed your image from and how you... But every one of us, and it's probably a little different for everyone that's here, all of us have formed our image of God. We form that image either from our parents or things we were taught in Sunday school or experiences we've had. We were all t- have formed some image of God and we relate to Him based on that image we have of Him. And that image that we have of Him is influenced, is influenced by things that, 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 that we either desire or want Him to be or things we don't want Him to be. And examples of this are rampant in the church today. These images come from our own mind and from our own motives. So Luther talked about that our image of God comes from within us. We form our image of God based on what He want Him to be. Want him to be. One of the popular beliefs that's out there now is that, well, and this is taught by pastors of some major churches, that really either there isn't any hell or God would never send anybody to hell because God's really a God of love. So if a God is a God of love, then God would never send anybody to hell. Listen to what they say. God is a God of love. True, the Bible says that. Here's where they start judging right and wrong on their own. In my thinking, because God's a God of love, In my thinking, therefore, God God could not possibly send someone to heaven. So now I've added my thinking to what God says about Himself. So I'm now taking the image of God as He really is, and I'm reforming Him in my own mind and heart to be what I want Him to be, what I hope He is. There's a term for that in the Bible, idolatry. you'll hear the expression, oh, God would never do that. And I say, well, tell, show me the scripture that says God would never do that. That's one of the dangers because we've got a generation now of Christians that are raised and they're biblically illiterate. They don't know what the Bible says. 
So their only opinion of who God is and what God does is social media or the news or whatever they think when they're reading some book or somebody's comment, blog or something. Instead of, because the only way you can know what we can know what God really is like is from what He tells us about Himself. And the source of that is two of them. Well, it's really one. It's His Word. But then God became flesh and dwelt among us so we could see Him and what He's like. And that is Christ and He's revealed from the Word. Okay, we have to move along. Exodus 32. Familiar story. This is Exodus is the children of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. Moses has been called up on the top of the mountain by God. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. While they're, he's on the mountain, the people get busy on their own. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that we shall go before us. For as, this, as for this Moses, the man whom you brought us out from the land, the, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, verse 2, we don't know what's become of him. He's been up there too long. Aaron said to them, Here's my answer. I don't know where God is right now. I can't see God. And our leader, I don't know where he is. So, so we've got to do something. We can't be patient and wait. So Aaron, this is, by the way, Moses' brother, and this is the high priest that God's about to appoint. Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, stop a second. Go ahead, the next verse. That's okay, verse 3. So the people broke off the gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Stay there a second. Where did that gold come from? There wasn't a Zales out there where they could go to a jewelry store. This gold came to them when God delivered them out of Egypt. They were slaves. And the Egyptian women were so grateful for them to get out because of the plagues that they literally took their gold jewelry and threw it at them. One of the translations says, and they plundered Egypt. So they left rich with all this gold, but God gave them that gold. He gave them this gold so that they could then, was about to give them the instructions to make a tabernacle where they could worship God, and that gold was a critical part of it. So the very material that God simply gave to them was intended to be used to worship Him, the living God. And they now take that because they think it's their own to use for their own purposes. Boy, I could go off on that one on talents and abilities and finances. Hell, all the things God has given us so that we can worship and serve Him. And because we have this same attitude, well, it's, I, know, I handle right and wrong for myself. We think it's ours to use for our own purposes and give God some leftover. Verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molten calf. A calf was one of the idols that they worshipped in Egypt. They didn't come up with this on their own. It was one of the most sacred animals in Egypt and they worshipped that. And they fashioned it and they, they look what they said. Listen to what they said very carefully. And they said, This is your God. O Israel, stop a second. While they're doing this on the mountain, 
God is giving Moses his standard of right and wrong. We call them the Ten Commandments. The very first one, God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. This is the Lord, your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they're not making this calf and worshiping it as some demonic idol. They're not bowing down to Baal. They're taking, this is what, this is Jehovah. We can't see Him, so we've made an image. We can actually see with our senses. It doesn't take any faith now to come to God and believe that He is, and He's rewarded those. I can see this image. So, but the point is, they took what God gave them, and they fashioned it after their own image in their mind and with the skill of their own hands. Keep going. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before the Lord and he made a proclamation saying, tomorrow, look at this, is a feast to the Lord. They called this calf the Lord, but they made the image for themselves. And when we form our own image of who God is, well, God wouldn't do that. God would never do that. We're doing exactly the same thing. When we evaluate who God is and what is right or wrong on our own, we're doing the same thing. So we must let God tell us who He is. We must let God tell us what He is like. And we must let God tell us what He requires. See, the image... The image we form of God comes from within us, from our thinking, our imagination, our desires, our motives. So we must now be willing to let this image of who God is come from outside of us. So we must be open to whatever He is, to whatever He wants to tell us about Himself. He reveals what He wants us to know about Himself through the Word. Christ is the Word made flesh, so He is a revelation of God. And when God took on flesh and walked among man and revealed what he was like, the religious leaders hated him. They hated the image of God that came from outside of them because he confronted who they were. He confronted their own pride and arrogance of they decided what was right and wrong for people. They didn't carry out what God said was right and wrong for people. And so they hated God when He physically appeared in front of them so much that they killed Him. And Luther calls that the annihilation of God and he says that's in each one of us when we want to do our own thing. We're doing the same thing. We're just trying to destroy God. In fact, he goes, says this, which is hard for us to imagine. Until you've submitted to who God is, you see God as your enemy. I mean, Paul says that in Romans 5. While you were still enemies. I had trouble. I couldn't, how is I God's enemy? I never did anything against Him. Well, we're going to see, and we may not get that far today. Because we've got to be willing to allow. I hope, this is heavy-duty stuff. 
Uh, if you come here, you're not coming to kindergarten. There's some other churches you can go to and they'll hold your hand and they'll make you feel better and that's okay sometimes. That's, but if you're here, it's because you really want to grow and mature and I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is the time to do it because if you don't do it now, it's going to be hard to do it with everything that's coming down the pike. God's trying to, this is, God's trying to move us up from kindergarten because some of us have been around in kindergarten for a long time and He's trying to move us to, eventually to graduate school as Christians. So He wants to reveal to us who we are, but we have to be, we have to first of all acknowledge, I'm living with a God, and again, again, there's no kind of, I'm living with a God that I've made for myself to some degree. I may, I mean, I know the word, but somewhere I'm putting limits on who He wants to be to me. There may be a limit of how powerful He wants to be for you, how much He wants to deliver you. Whatever it is, we put limits on Him because it goes beyond what we think we can handle, or whatever it is. So we have to be allow God from the outside to tell us things we may not want to hear. But you can do that because He loves you. He's not doing this to hurt us. He's doing this to deliver us and to set us free. We're not going to finish this today. God reveals Himself above all, everything else, as a holy God. We sang about that this morning. Fully righteous, fully just, and fully truth. Everything that God did with Israel, all the rules and, and restrictions and things that God had them do, I mean, there was 613, I think, of them, eventually. Underneath all those rules, God was communicating to something. You are my people. I've called you out of the world. You belong to me. And you are exclusively mine. That's why you can't worship other idols. That's why you couldn't intermarry with other peoples. You have to stick because you have to be pure towards me because I birthed you. I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. Isaiah 43. Because you are precious in my sight, I've given other people for you. So all these rules were to teach them two basic things. You are different from everybody else in the world because you belong to me. And you can't do what you want to do because you are mine, not your own. But doesn't the Bible say that we are a holy generation, a royal priesthood? that we should show forth the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So God's working with His people was to, to, to get through to them. He is a holy God and they are a holy people because they belong to Him. And I suggest to you the church today does not see itself as a holy body because we don't see the God we worship as a holy God. I'm going to have to... I'm not going to get to finish this today. But I'll give you a taste. I'm going to give you a couple quick examples of God's holiness versus man's sense of right and wrong. Leviticus chapter 10. What's just happened is God has just set up the tabernacle through Moses. 
He's just, in verse chapter 9, he's ordained the priesthood and he has consecrated them with the blood of sacrifice on their hands. All right? And, and he, has, he has set up in the tabernacle an altar of incense. And he has prescribed exactly the mixture that's to be burned on this altar because it represents prayers and worship up to him. And it's right outside the inner room called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant and God's physical presence dwells in there. And earlier God has commanded and said, this can only be done by Aaron with this mixture. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his own censer and they put fire in their censers and put incense on it and they offered profane fire before the Lord which he had not commanded. That's no big deal. I mean, so they made a little... So they, you know, they put the wrong thing in the censer and they just did the wrong thing. Suppose they did that. No big deal. Which the Lord God had commanded them. Verse 2. So fire went out from the Lord and He devoured them and they died before the Lord. You ever see the end of the first Indiana Jones one where the fire shoots out? That's what this must have been like. Oh, right before that, fire had come down to ignite the, 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 the holy sacrifice. Aaron's watching his sons fry for using the wrong materials. What's with that? Verse 3. So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. This is what God said about it. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy before all the people. I must be glorified. So Aaron shut his mouth. He just watched his son fried. He must have been angry. He could have been angry. This isn't just. This isn't right. But when God reminded him that the place was holy, there was no answer. There was no answer. First Chronicles 13. We're going to quickly go through some of this, if you can bear with me a minute. This is a story of David bringing the ark. The ark was taken by the Philistines. David has rescued the ark, and now David's going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He's prepared a place for it. So I've got to shorten this down. So David's bringing them back. Uh, the Lord, go on to the, the next verse, verse 7. So they carried the ark on a new cart to the house, from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah in Ohio, Ohio drove the cart. So what's going on here is, and David and all of Israel played music before the Lord, their might, singing on harps and strings, instruments, tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Keep going. And when they came to Shildon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand out to hold the cart because the oxen stumbled. So here's the scene. There's this big procession bringing the ark, which they've waited. This is, the ark was the center of their worship. It was the most holy thing they had. God's Shekinah glory, when it's set up properly, dwelled between the angels. It contained pieces of the broken Ten Commandments that God wrote with His own finger. Very sacred to them. And so they're bringing it in on a cart with oxen, and the oxen stumble, and it looks like it's going to slide off. So Uzzah reached out to catch it so that it wouldn't drop on the ground. Now that sounds like a wonderful thing to be doing, but look what happened. Verse 10. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uda, and he struck him because he put his hand on the ark, and he died before the Lord. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That go on, this next verse. And David's angry because of the Lord's outburst. David's angry at God. This is unjust. 
I mean, as most, I can understand Abinadab and Abihu, they knew better than this. But he's trying to save your precious heart from hitting the dirty ground. And you fry him on the spot. But you've got to understand some background here. The ark was holy. And God had ordained that the ark could only be carried, it could not be carried on anything man-made because it was holy. That's a principle throughout the Old Testament. Anything man makes is profaned. So whatever has God's presence on it has to be carried or present on something God made. And so God ordained that the ark could only be carried on the shoulders of men, something God made. And only by one particular family of the tribe of Levi. So first of all, the ark should never have been on a cart. That's something man-made. So God was already probably getting worked up. Uzzah knew better. So it's not some... Uzzah knew better. So Uzzah's good intentions, Uzzah's sense of what's right and wrong killed him. See, we look at that, that's just not just, but we're not looking at it through the eyes of a holy God who's entitled to be treated as a holy God and His commandments are entitled to be obeyed as if they're given by a holy God. Can you give me just a couple minutes? Because I'm going to be away the next two Sundays. David's angry, so he shuts the whole thing down. We're not moving it. They stuck it in the threshing floor of Abinadab, and David just went back to collect himself. Eventually, David figures out what's wrong, and so they bring the cart in this time. But this time when they bring it, it's carried on the whole shoulders of the families. And every 10 or 12 steps, they stop and they sacrifice a bull. And every 10 or 12 steps, they stop and all the way into Jerusalem. He's not making the same mistake again. They're sacrificing. That had to do with atoning for sin. They're recognizing this is the most holy thing that exists now. David learned his lesson. And unfortunately, Uzzah learned it the hard way. The Old Testament lists crimes that are punishable by death, which include cursing your parents, murder, kidnapping, unlawful divorce, blasphemy, just taking God's name in vain, death, immediate death, Sabbath violations, not going to church on Sunday. Sexual perversion. Actually, it's more specific than that, but that's how I'm saying it. Practicing magic, astrology, Ouija boards, consulting mediums or wizards, rape, incest, or false prophecy were punished by immediate death. Some of those seem pretty harsh weighing out the crimes. But when you compare it with what God's commands for violating His Word... In Genesis chapter 3, the, the punishment for any sin, any sin is death. So anything short of death that God meets out as a punishment is mercy. 
But we're loose. We're, see, we evaluate what's right and wrong by what we think is just. Because we don't recognize He's a holy God and what He's entitled to. Job. Uh, oh. Job is a great classic case of this. Job, God says about him that he's a just man and upright and he eschews or avoids evil and God bragged that to Satan about Job. See my man Job? He's a righteous guy. So Satan says, all right, I want to test him. God says, okay, but you can't destroy him. And I don't want to get into all that. So Job, if you ever feel sorry for yourself, read the first three chapters of Job. Job had the worst couple of days you can imagine because in one day he lost his whole family except his wife and she's the one he should have lost because all she says is curse God and die. She gives up right away. Lost his children. He lost, he lost everything he had in one day. Report after report comes to him. Your children have died. A rock fell on them. Your house burned down. Your cattle's run away. All this came on him. And then, then he says, then the next chapter, he loses his health. He breaks out in boils. And three of the most wonderful friends you can have come and visit him. And they spend the next 29 chapters telling him why, what's wrong and why he's going through this. And then a man named Elihu shows up who's young. He's been listening to all this. And he begins to say some things. And through all this, Job does not sin. But he comes to a place where he's had it. And he begins to cry out to God and he's angry because he's saying, this is not fair. In chapter, I think it's 38 or 39, he lists all the things he's done right and all the things he should not have done that he didn't do. I didn't look wrongly at a woman. I didn't conceive of this in my heart. I did all these things he did right. So it's not just that he should be treated this way. But the crux of it is in chapter 9 when he says, he says, he says, this is not fair. Because if anybody else did this to me, I could take them into court and you would have to answer for what you've done. Oh, that there was a daysman. Oh, that there was a mediator, a judge that could stand between you, God, and me to judge what's fair here. Because finally he's had it. This is not fair. God shows up around chapter 39. And in my picture of this is God says, all right, you want a day in court? Let me cross-examine you. Let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I founded the earth? Where were you when I laid out the... Stu- the, 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 the did you measure... Can you measure the expanse of the universe? Where were you when I hung... Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I, where were you when I formed you? Where were you... Can you do this? Can you... And then he takes a breath and goes in the next chapter. And can you, can you draw a, a, a whale out of the ocean with a hook? Can you hang him on a line? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And finally Job says, I give up. He says, I've spoken foolishness, but he hasn't repented yet. So God hammers him again for another chapter. And finally, he says, I now see you. And I sit here in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, I now see you for who you really are. And then I really see me for who I am. And now Job was in a place to receive 
God's love and mercy and grace. Because God told him to pray for his friends because God was going to destroy them. And then God said to him, God restored to him twice everything that was lost. I want to close with a quote and then give you a word of encouragement (laughs) to go forward. This is a quote from a book that I've read called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He's talking about this very issue, some of these things I've gotten out of that book. Let me just read this to you. We have not used the gift of life for the purpose God intended. Life on this planet has become the arena in which we daily carry out the work of cosmic treason. Our crime is far more serious, far more destructive than that of Benjamin Benedict Arnold. No traitor to any king or nation even approaches the wickedness of our treason before God. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against the perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute picadillo? What we are saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do and not what you command me to do. The good news is this. Where Job cried out for a mediator between God and man, God has given us a mediator. Timothy says the, one, the, the only mediator between God and man is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to bear God's anger against our treason so that God's righteous judgment could be satisfied. God didn't forgive sin by just looking the other way, the way we as parents often do, because Romans says He still is just and the justifier. So if God just looked the other way at our sin, He would no longer be holy and righteous. So God had to do something, act in judgment. He had to take that sword of justice and He could do it blindly because we're all guilty and slay all of us. But because He loves us, He sent His Son here. That His Son stood in your place and my place and God slayed His Son in righteous judgment for your sin and my sin. That's why God had to make His Son to be sin so that He could give us His righteousness. I want to end with this scripture. It's Proverbs 9, 10. This is what we've been talking about today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The world and the church is out there trying to be wise without the fear of the Lord, who He really is. The fear of the Lord is only the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One, that He is holy and who He is, is the doorway to true understanding. To be in Christ... To be a Christian means that I have no right to an independent judgment 
about any issue. His judgment has to be mine if I'm in Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words we've heard, but they're the truth. And your word tells us that the truth that we know has been given to us to set us free. We all of us to some degree live in bondage to the deception that we're right, to the deception of that we can resolve these things and figure these things out on our own, to the deception that, that you're merciful and kind and therefore everything's okay in your eyes. Lord, we formed our own image of you. We've lived in different degrees of idolatry. Right now, you demonstrate your grace and mercy because you've not destroyed us for things you would have destroyed Israel for in times past. And that's because of Christ. But wake us up, Father, to a healthy fear and reverence for who you really are that we would submit our lives to your judgment, to your word, to your commandments, to your way of life and stand strong on them regardless of what comes against us because you need your church to rise up and to be strong. Start with us, Father. We repent of the ways in which we've formed an image of you. We repent of the ways in which we've tried to, to live our own life and do our own thing and to come up with our own opinions. We repent of those now and we ask you to forgive us. We know you will. And to bring our thoughts and our words into the obedience of Christ. Father, we recognize we can't do this in our own strength, but it's through the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit that we entrust ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.